You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Whether you're a child of the 70s, 90s, or 20-teens, you've probably at some point gathered around the candy-colored spinner of the game of life, moving your little plastic car through all the squares of possible outcome. The original game was not just a game, though, but was also supposed to teach great moral lessons. Squares like bravery led to honor, ambition led to fame, influence led to fat office. But there were also squares with poverty, disgrace, ruin, suicide, and both jail and prison. And all because Abraham Lincoln grew a beard. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Do you ever wonder how I come up with the topics for the show? Well, one way is that the supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts get to vote on some topics, which really helps me pare down the 19-page list of ideas I have. And this is another one of those. The topic idea I put before them was games of life and death. Does this mean sports that are very dangerous to play? Sports where your life may hinge on the outcome? Yes. Let's start with the dangerous sports first. And not the usual stuff like Formula One racing, running with the bulls, Halo, which is a type of skydiving called high-altitude, low-opening. Don't do that. Let's go for some of the ones you probably haven't heard of. Calcio Storico is an early form of football or soccer or rugby that originated in the 16th century in Italy, in Florence in particular. In terms of rules, there aren't many. Neither have they changed very much since 1580 when the game is thought to have been established. You just can't sucker punch your opponent or kick anyone in the head. Other than that, you can punch, headbutt, trip, wrestle, and choke your way across the field. Seems like Calcio was also the genesis of soccer hooliganism, because that's kind of their remit. Oh, and by the way, the word soccer is a British invention that the British were using until about 20-30 years ago. I can see that the descriptor football fits that better than does American football, but I'm still going to say soccer. Players seem adamant that Calcio Storico isn't a sport, it's a game. This distinguishment apparently comes from the fact that there isn't a specific season for the game. Players can only participate in a max of two games each year so they don't really have multi-month processes of seasonal sports. Instead, you get a massive energetic display of violence and tradition that pit the four quarters of Florence against each other. When you think of Japan, you might think of the lights and technology of Tokyo, or anime girl body pillows and tentacle monsters, which is a shame because neither of these even hints at Japan's badass history. Bo Taoshi, however, does. The rules of the game are simple. It doesn't have goals or nets. It has a pole. One team is defending the pole for two minutes. The other team are meant to attack it and try to bend it to a 45-degree angle. 
literally easier said than done. Both teams attack and defend at the same time and contain 150 players, meaning there's 300 guys beating the hell out of each other for two minutes. They're not entirely reckless, you do get to wear a helmet. Otherwise, though, it's just you and your plain-clothed body smashing against a human wall. Some of my Metalhead listeners are probably having fond remembrances right now of smashing into human walls. There's no exact date for the first-ever game of Baotaoshai, but it's thought to have started sometime in 1945 with Japanese military cadets. And that's reasonably plausible. The initial chanting and cries of the attacking charge sound a lot like Japanese soldiers in World War II, so it fits. Plus, you have to imagine the game would be an excellent way to teach soldiers to work together in large groups, as well as to withstand serious physical punishment and keep going. Though in this reporter's opinion, they seem to be preparing for the most epic game of Capture the Flag. Moving west considerably and very far back in time, there was a sport that caused present-day archaeologists some real consternation. Egyptian fishermen jousting. Archaeologists and anthropologists just didn't know what they were looking at, but they had to reason that it was a recreational activity because no evidence had been found of any actual military forces using the techniques they were seeing recorded. Basically, you've got a bunch of guys standing up in a small boat. Each one of them is carrying a long pole. Some of them would use the pole to pilot the boat, while a few of them used their pole to hit people in the other boat. These were not playful jabs. This wasn't the pugilism event in American Gladiators. Carvings regularly depict the matches as extremely violent and malicious. Most, if not all, matches drawing blood. If the other crew successfully knocked you into the water, it probably didn't matter how strong a swimmer you were, since you and your bleeding scalp laceration landed in crocodile-infested water. The chance of death while playing was not at all insignificant. So why did people play it? Well, we're not 100% sure, unfortunately, whether or not it was competitors participating for the love of the game, or if it might have been a form of punishment like in the Roman Colosseum. We now turn the world tour north to Scandinavia, where I'll just call the people Vikings because it's easier. When Vikings decided to race each other in the water, they had their own special way of doing it. Basically, they turned Michael Phelps' career into a contact sport. If Vikings were swimming competitively, assume they were hitting and shoving each other or dragging their opponent under the water in an attempt to slow them down. Basically, every time your brother challenged you to a race in the pool. Sometimes all of this was fully decked out in weapons and armor too, which means these were some seriously strong swimmers. There are even reports, albeit tricky to confirm, that sometimes the Vikings would just skip the swimming altogether. If they did, the competition was to try to hold your opponent under the water for longer than he held you. You know, for kids. The Scandinavians were mighty seafarers, sure, but crossing the Atlantic in a biggish boat is nothing compared to crossing the Pacific in a canoe, as the Polynesian people did. Not to downplay that because it's insanely dangerous, but it can look pretty tame compared to the Hawaiian tradition of hi-hu-lua. Hi-hu-lua is closely related to bobsledding, only these Hawaiian sleds don't speed down cushy tracks of soft powdery snow, but enormous paths in old lava flows were constructed out of lava rocks, 
Sledders routinely hit speeds in excess of 80 miles per hour as they zip down the stone paths, which would be more than enough to shred all of the skin from their body if they fell off. As far as I can tell, the longest paths that exist went from the top of Hawaii's volcano down to the ocean. And it may end at the ocean not just to take it as far as possible, but because that would be the only way to stop safely. There is no evidence of any sort of braking mechanism ever being used in Hiholua. We interrupt your scheduled program with this breaking announcement. Voiceover artist Moxie Labouche is offering 10 small businesses a free voiceover. This can be a phone menu, an explainer video, a YouTube video, a social media ad. Email contact at moxielabouche.com to order your free voiceover today. Contact at moxielabouche.com. If I say all-American and you're feeling a little wistful and not a bit cliché, you'll say baseball and apple pie. If instead you are a bit of a bitter social realist, you might answer that prompt all-American with war for oil and the prison industrial complex. Well, I found a story for you that ticks both of those boxes. The Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars of 1910. The state of Wyoming, which according to my husband doesn't exist because, and I quote, you've never met anyone from Wyoming, was all in on the classic Wild West culture. Well into the late 1800s, working men caroused and gambled in saloons. Sheriffs were the principal law enforcement instead of a police department. Bounty hunters did brisk business. People were hanged in the town square because the jail wasn't big enough to incarcerate people long term. And people were pretty accepting of frontier justice and vigilantism. This was the same period when baseball was invented, not by Abner Doubleday as is often reported, and it quickly grew in both popularity and geographical spread. It was a wholesome, family-friendly activity that dads and sons could play together. People were mad for it, watching as well as playing, so there was a peaked demand for organized games. There were not, however, all that many professional teams. It's hard to be an expert in something that just came into being, or at least it used to be before everybody began declaring themselves experts in whatever's trending on Twitter today and selling courses and certifications in it tomorrow. In answer to the demand, many local businesses formed teams of their employees and competed against each other. If I were such a business owner and found myself with my team playing my direct competitor, I would absolutely spin that into a big trial-by-combat, only-the-strongest-comes-out-alive marketing blitz. The baseball-building bug also bit Otto Graham, a millionaire businessman who added prison warden to his CV for reasons that are, perhaps thankfully, not documented. He created a broom factory inside Wyoming State Penitentiary, where the free labor earned him a personal profit of over $6 million in today's money over the first 10 years. Life in the Wyoming State Pen was already miserable, lacking both electricity, which had been available for years, and running water, which has been available since the Minoans of Crete 5,000 years ago. And Graham made life even worse, all in the name of maximizing profits. He even measured how much food each prisoner got down to the individual bean. The government eventually cottoned on to the state of affairs and made it illegal for any warden to personally profit off of his prisoners. 
We'll skip over how the government itself now profits off prisoners. Graham stepped down as warden, a far richer man than he started. He was replaced by a man named Felix Alston, the former sheriff of Bighorn County. Sheriff Alston was more compassionate than his predecessor, allowing the men to exercise outside on the prison grounds. This was a significant change, as many of the men had not been out in the daylight since the day the prison opened a decade earlier. Now that recreation, even in a limited capacity, was an option, pickup games of baseball became a thing, and Alston noticed that some of these guys were pretty good at it. Sheriff Alston was friends with Wyoming Governor Joseph Carey and asked Carey for permission to let the men form a baseball team. Governor Carey was, we'll say, a fond gambler and had dollar signs in his eyes at the chance to make a profit off the convicts. So he agreed to the formation of a proper, bona fide baseball team, the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars. The team was given sharp new uniforms and treated a lot like actual athletes. The first team they played against, the only team willing to play the All-Stars, was the Wyoming Supply Company Juniors. It was basically the Washington Generals versus the Harlem Globetrotters, with the Penitentiary All-Stars delivering a royal beatdown of 11-1. to For context for my non-U.S. Brainiacs, final scores in pro baseball are usually in the 2-4 point range, so 11? It's nothing to sneeze at. Now, before you throw your lot in with the All-Stars, as a lifetime of underdog sports movies have conditioned us to do, let's meet some of these talented players. There was Joseph Seng, who hit home runs in nearly every game. He was on death row for murder, though the public was sympathetic to him because he killed his girlfriend's lover and was very good at hitting a ball with a stick. Apparently, that's all it takes to start a letter-writing campaign to the governor asking for clemency. First baseman was Leroy Cook, who was sentenced for the bludgeoning death and robbery of a barber. Third baseman Jack Carter, sentenced for killing a man and trying to burn the dismembered corpse in the fireplace. Pitcher William Boyer stabbed his father to death with a letter opener. Catcher Horace Donovan shot and killed his brother-in-law. Outfielders William Boyer, Darius Rowan, and Laszlo Korda, between them racked up a number of rapes and eight murders. The captain of the team, second baseman George Saban, was convicted of triple homicide in the turf war between cattle herders and sheep ranchers. I told you it was basically still the Wild West. Alston actually allowed Saban to leave the prison with an armed escort after the team was formed, as long as they got back before dark. While he'd be out on the town, Saban would tell locals about how hard they were training, how good the players were, which fascinated people and encouraged betting on the All-Stars, which naturally Alston and Carey profited from. The All-Stars played just four games, winning them all, but every game was infused with more drama than the modern World Series. No one has ever taken the field the way the All-Stars did. The 12-inmate team marched onto the field, chained together, and were unshackled in the dugout. Guards surrounded the field, shotguns leveled at the players. The moment the game ended, all the players lined up on the third baseline, where they would be handcuffed and shackled again. The ticket-buying public was utterly fascinated. Making all that money for the sheriff and governor brought the men perks like extra food at mealtimes, which did not sit well with the other prisoners. The other prisoners also wondered why Seng was still alive, even though his execution date had come and gone. 
fueling a rumor that through exceptional baseball prowess, he had escaped his execution. Alston always claimed there was some bureaucratic delay. The reality seems to be that Alston was actively pushing back the scheduled executions to keep that gravy train chugging along. There was also a rumor that poor performance on the field meant the men would have time added to their sentence or have the date of their execution moved up. This may or may not have been used as a threat by prison officials, but it was definitely used as a threat by Saban, shouting from the dugout when the performance on field wasn't up to snuff. He also perpetuated the rumor that Sang might escape the death penalty. Neither of those things was true, but it was enough motivation to keep the players on task. All was going well for the prison, the players, and those who were betting on them, until the wider press got wind of the situation. Newspapers broke the story about widespread gambling and the motivations for the players' continued success. People quickly came to believe that the governor was involved in this conspiracy. To defray these allegations, Governor Carey created an anti-gambling campaign, and Sheriff Alston decided to scrap the baseball team and use the funds to create an educational program instead. With the cash cow's udder all dried up and the negative publicity from the exposure of the practice, the team was disbanded, and the teammates went back to death row. Sang, who got an extra year of life out of the arrangement, was hanged on May 22, 1912. Reporters wrote that he walked bravely, with pride, and without fear. Saban, on the other hand, managed to escape with help from a guard who'd made a lot of money betting on the team, and was never recaptured. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. In our wide world of fun facts, there are a couple of big hitters that seem to come up over and over again, and everyone hears at least once. This one I think I actually got from my third-grade science teacher, but that may be because he's the only elementary school teacher I can remember at this point. 
which was that the ancient Aztecs had a kind of ball game where if you won, you'd be put to death. Well, he, or at least my memory, is partially correct. The Olmecs started it, the Maya tweaked it, but the Aztecs nailed it. What is just referred to as the Mesoamerican ball game, played with a solid rubber ball weighing about 10 pounds or 3.5 kilos, was played on stone courts that can be found from Arizona to Nicaragua. The Mesoamerican ball game makes its first appearance among the Olmec around 1500 BCE in central Gulf Coast of Mexico, the area known at the time for latex production. Many balls have been discovered in the region as part of burials and ritual offerings, suggesting the balls and ball game accoutrement were a sign of status or wealth. In fact, this idea has been reinforced by the evidence of ball courts being found near the chief's homes in Olmec sites. The game the Olmecs played was associated with prestige and social standing, and only the wealthy, therefore upper class, could afford to put on a game. The giant stone heads found in the region also depict chiefs wearing their ball game playing helmet. The game was adopted by the Maya, who added their own twist to it. Humans and the lords of the underworld battled it out by playing this game, according to the creation story known as the Popol Vuh. In this way, the ball court was a portal to Shibalba, the Mayan underworld. The Maya used the game as a stand-in for warfare, settling territory disputes and hereditary issues, and to foretell the future. Captives of war would be forced to play, undoubtedly rigged games, that resulted in their sacrifice when they lost. The Aztecs continued this proud tradition of loser-lose-all, as many vases and sculptures depict the inevitable decapitation of the losing team. There are even some depictions of ball players playing with the heads of the losers. Whether this actually occurred is up to a certain amount of speculation. The Spanish who witnessed the game reported horrific injuries to the players, deep bruising requiring lancing, broken bones, and even death. For everyday Maya society, the ball game was simply a sport. The abundant number of courts in the Maya ruins, both large and small, show that this was a game that was played frequently both for official reasons and just for fun. Just like you can't compare pickup street basketball with an NBA stadium, you can't compare every different ball court among the Maya. However, the ball game was also a religious rite, an active play commemorating part of the drama of the ancient Maya creation story. The director's cut of the Maya creation story is a fascinating saga, not unlike the Hindu Ramayana, but, for the sake of everyone's bandwidth, I'll sum up. The main action occurs when the famed Maya hero twins, sons of the slain maize god, use their athletic skills to beat the gods of the underworld at the ballgame. The angry losing gods then sacrificed both of the twins, the winners. But the gods of the sky brought them back to life. Resurrected vigilantes, the hero twins slay the gods of the underworld and then resurrect their father, the maize god, and escape from Shibalba in a canoe before finally crawling through a small crack in the earth. When the sport was played for sport's sake, it consisted of two teams dressed in special gear, as you get in most sports, played with a pure rubber ball, solid all the way through. Making viable rubber from the latex of trees was technology the Maya had long before Europeans cottoned on. 
the losers were not sacrificed, at least not all the time. The more likely scenario is that ritual sacrifice was only performed after certain games specified for that rite. The most common scenario was the final play in the war ceremony, that after a city won a battle, rather than simply killing the vanquished leaders, they equipped them with sports gear and played the ball game against the conquered soldiers. The winners of the war also won the ball game, after which the losers were then sacrificed, either by decapitation or removal of their heart. How frequently this actually happened is unknown, although historians have shown that the practice increased later on in Maya civilization and may have been a symptom of the society's decline. In any case, this method of sacrifice was tied entirely to warfare, and so not an everyday thing. Other historians hold that it's the winners who were sacrificed, that teams volunteered to play in the ceremony, knowing that you would be sacrificed to the gods. The incentive was the great honor bestowed not only on the individual, but also their families, typically leading to advancement in society. The losers, on the other hand, were demoted to a life of impoverished slavery. It's likely that both scenarios occurred to some degree, both winners and losers being sacrificed at some point, but it's not the essence of what the ball game was about. There are over 1,000 documented sites where the game was played all across Mesoamerica. Some of the earliest ones, like those in Paso de Yamada, date back over three millennia to the 1600s BCE. There are even some preserved rubber balls from the original games. They were found in swamps, where the anaerobic conditions of the mud kept the natural rubber from decomposing. So you've got a ball and a court, or field, or pitch if you're from the home counties. Much of the rest, though, we've just tried to fill in as best we may. Because the game was played for a long time, across a wide area, and by a variety of people, it can be hard to tell if inconsistencies in the history are bad record-keeping, most records come from the Spanish who were none too fond of all things native, or if it's just down to variations in the game. These ancient playing fields came in many shapes, sizes, and angles, but most were in the shape of a capital sans-serif I when viewed from above. The central play area is flanked on either side by walls that could be straight, sloped, or a combination of the two. On each of these side walls was mounted an ornate stone hoop. Usually, but there are many fields that don't have them. On either end of the court, it widens out into a sort of end zone area that could be walled in or open. The significance of the games to their respective societies can be inferred, as dicey a process as that is, by how commonly they're found alongside temples or in what one source called sacred precincts. Side note on interpreting ancient cultures. My father liked to ponder back in the 90s that if aliens were digging around on Earth a thousand years from now, they'd probably think CDs and CD-ROMs were religious artifacts because of how important and ubiquitous they were. He failed to predict the meteoric rise of digital media. Or look at Disney. How could future aliens not think that this was a major force in our society when you look at all the paraphernalia in nearly every household and the giant temples they've built around the world. All glory to our benevolent mouse god. Please don't buy any more franchises. Anyway, 
This was a spectator sport, so the whole thing might be ringed in with seating. It's likely the games drew rich and poor alike, though you'd probably only find the nobles at the bigger arenas or for the special ceremonial games. For everybody else, there were pickup games and celebrity players just like modern basketball. These nobles were known to bet land, jewels, slaves, and even their mistresses on the outcomes of the game. The arenas also hosted other important functions like feasts, festivals, and other ceremonies, further acting as a bridge between the different levels of society. It was the venue's use for religious ceremonies and the religious symbolism of the game that really tied the room together. The ball represented the sun, which was passed between each side of the court, symbolizing the heavens and the underworld. It's hard to overstate the significance of the solar cycle to the Mesoamerican religions and tied closely to the cycles of death and rebirth. As such, the equinoxes are very important dates, and it appeared that the ball games were scheduled to mark the battle between the celestial and infernal forces on the equinoxes. When players took the field, their uniform would typically be loincloths or short skirts, and in the more ceremonial games, elaborate headdresses or fake animal heads. Most importantly, they had strategic padding made of wood, leather, or woven material. They might have gloves, but those were probably to protect their hands from the ground, or each other, because like modern soccer, they weren't allowed to touch the ball with their hands. The exact rules of the ball game are unclear, but it is believed that players were not allowed to hit the ball with their hands or feet. Instead, they could only use their knees, hips, or elbows to pass the ball from one to another, with the ultimate goal being to pass the ball through the stone ring on the side of the court. You could score points when an opponent failed to return the ball, or if they knocked the ball out of bounds, kind of like tennis. You could score points if the ball was launched into the opposing team's end zone, when special markers were hit, and of course, when you get the ball through the stone hoop. This was worth a lot of points, or an instant win, we're not sure, because those hoops weren't much bigger than the ball, and were way up in the air, sometimes with a slanted bit of wall you can Jackie Chan your way up to, sometimes not. It's like the snitch in Quidditch, apparently. I don't know, I was never into Harry Potter. If you asked me what house I was in, I'd say Lannister. We're nebulous also on what actually brings about the end of the game, but there seem to be two general styles. In one variant, play ends when the ball hits the ground. According to Friar Diego Duran, skilled players were able to keep the ball up in the air for an hour at a time. Again, a solid ball that weighs as much as a good-sized watermelon. The other version ended when the ball came to a stop. So a ball hog is not only a bad sportsman, but a real detriment to your chances. Now, the big question. Sacrifices. Were players sacrificed? In which culture? Was that fate a punishment for losers? Or were the winners a sacrifice of great value? Just like with the rules, this varied. The Aztecs in particular believed that the machinery of the world was driven by vital energy, which is held in the blood. Hence the commonality of human sacrifice. Gotta fuel up creation. Ruins at Chichen Itza show a player representing the sun being sacrificed on the vernal equinox, 
and the player representing the moon being sacrificed on the autumnal equinox. But it's unclear, after all this time, to what degree this was actual practice or merely symbolic. One argument against the fact that all the losers or all the winners were sacrificed is simple numbers. While Aztec cities had large populations, smaller villages didn't. Killing half a dozen guys after every game would have an impact, especially since the players were the fit, strong, young, hard-working people. Not to mention, if you're killing the winners, you're gonna run out of good players before long, and the game will get really boring. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Milton Bradley, a name now synonymous with board games, was a young lithographer, a printer essentially, when he made a thousand prints of a particular presidential candidate, the then clean-shaven Abraham Lincoln. When Lincoln grew the beard that he's so well-known for now, all of Bradley's prints were worthless and unsellable. So he had to pivot his business and decided to move into the new medium of board games. He was inspired to create the Game of Life as well as other games and educational materials after volunteering to teach his daughter's kindergarten class, one of the first in the nation. What I found most interesting about the game was rather than the board-mounted spinner we're used to, it used a kind of top called a teetotem, which I think is ready to make a comeback. Remember, you can always find the source notes for the show as well as the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Use that same podcast listening app to check out a true crime podcast that focuses on the real-life events of military personnel, veterans, and their families. The Military True Crime Addict. Military True Crime Addict explores the true crime cases that aren't widely reported in news media. Stories that, upon hearing, you'll be astounded by. Histories that should have been told and reported on long ago. Military True Crime Addict seeks to provide a voice to the victims and hear their side of the story as well, and to raise awareness of these crimes and those they impact. You don't need to know anything about the military to enjoy the Military True Crime Addict podcast. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.